Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm a firm believer that ignorance is no longer bliss. You know, if we don't know about these issues, if we, if we kind of bury our heads in the sand because they're too much for us to handle, that issue becomes a lot bigger. So when we eventually pull our head out of that sand then actually we're faced with a much bigger challenge. But actually by tackling it and kind of facing it head on, then we can change the issues that we're so scared of. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Megan McCubbin. Megan is a zoologist, wildlife TV presenter and author. She grew up surrounded by wildlife and adventure and found her passion and her cause early on. In many ways, this episode is a call to arms. It's less of a personal story, although there are a few of those, and more of a conversation about the state of nature in the UK, our right to protest and what we can do about the state of the world. Despite the heavy themes, it's an immensely hopeful conversation. We touch on a variety of subjects and topics, from the concept of shifting baseline syndrome, the reintroduction of wolves, and how IVF in animals might be able to bring lost and extinct species back to life. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication, Sidetracked is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Megan McCubbin. So thanks very much for doing this. I think the logical place to start, as always, is um, if you could just introduce yourself, tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. God, what a question. Uh, my name is Megan McCubbin and I'm a zoologist and wildlife TV presenter uh, and I guess author now as well. I can add that one on to the, the end of the bow. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, I'm a, I, I'm a science communicator. I try and get some really cool science or science that I think people will care about or need to hear and I try and communicate it in a way that is digestible and exciting to a wide audience of people so if you want to put it like that I guess I'm more of a science communicator more than anything else. And how have you ended up here? What was your childhood like? Where did you fall in love with what you're in love with? I've got no clue how I ended up here but I'm very happy that I have. Um, So for me kind of growing up 
around wildlife and in nature and the environment was just part and parcel of absolutely everything that I did. So, you know, no matter what age I was, I was generally always outside. Um, you know, in the garden, I would go and try and look for the worms or the woodlouse and um, the butterflies and everything like that. I was just obsessed with kind of investigating what was going on in these habitats. I wanted to understand like how it was moving, why it was moving that way, how it was interacting with other species. I was just curious about everything to do with biology. Um, and then I think as I kind of grew up, you kind of have to start asking yourself more questions along the lines of, okay, what can I do to help this animal? Because actually I now know that this animal is in trouble. Um, so I think I've been very much guided by that sense of duty and almost a sense of injustice in some ways about the state of the world as it is. You know, the UK being one of the most nature depleted countries in the world. I just, I feel like I've got this, um, I don't know, I feel like I've, I, I just have to use my voice to, to speak up for, for nature. Um, you know, as, as best I possibly can. Nature's given me so much. I just want to give a little bit back to it. So I guess that's kind of what drives me to do what I do. But um, I always imagine myself kind of a scientist somewhere in the bush in Africa, perhaps, you know, understanding about hyena social intelligence or something really niche like that. I imagine myself going down like a really niche rabbit hole in biology. Um, but yeah, I, I ended up um, kind of doing all these volunteer programs because I was very much aware that as well as, you know, having your academic qualifications and as important as they are, I was really aware that I needed practical experience as well. So I went and I lived in China for about four months and I was working with a charity called Animals Asia that rescue and uh, rehabilitate uh, typically Asiatic black bears or all kinds of bears really that are stuck in the bear bar farming industry. So I was a, a behavioral specialist volunteer for them. Um, and I went and worked out there. And then I, I, when I got back home, um, a friend of mine at the BBC said that they'd had a story fall through of one of, uh, their new series, which was called undercover tourist about how close tourists can actually get to the illegal wildlife trade. And, um, they, yeah they they didn't know what to do because they were kind of at a loose end with the whole story so I just said well what about bears why don't we go and film bear bar farming so that was back in 2017 and that was my first ever film documentary um for BBC Three I think it's still on YouTube and yeah it's kind of all snowballed from there really I that's kind of when I first got in front of the camera um people said that I wasn't too bad at it <laughs> and, that's, and that's kind of led to what I do today um but yeah anything talking about animals talking about how to look after them and conserve them yeah it just makes make, makes me happy because it makes me feel like I'm, I'm I'm doing my little bit to tackle the problem but obviously it's always more to do yeah and I'm sure this will be a recurring theme of this conversation but in terms of the jeopardy and the issues but when did the transition happen if there were I mean I'm not sure there was a trigger point but from a fascination with worms and butterflies in the garden and how things are working to huh there are problems here there are crises big small global local when did it occur to you that that was a problem um I never I don't think there was a trigger point for that um I was really lucky since the age of two that I was able to travel around the world so I've, I've been to some really remote places at a really young age which is I'm totally aware of the privilege that, that has and how lucky I am to have done that it's, that you know that I'm very much aware <laughs> of that aspect of it um 
you know, and, and it was amazing. I got to meet all these really rare and endangered species. I got to meet communities, like really small indigenous communities, um, go to some really remote countries. And um, I think, like, there's so many benefits of that. Uh, but I do think that when I come home, it's hit me. You know, when, I, when you've seen a species on the brick, or oh, you've seen like a glacial retreat in this, like just before you're 12 years old, because you've been to that glacier multiple times and every year you've gone back in the summer, it's got less and less and less. When you've seen that firsthand, when you've seen communities starving, when you've seen communities displaced by climate change, I think there, that, that's when that sense of duty comes in for me because, you know, I, I've really seen climate change. I've, I've seen species destruction at a really early age so I think it was just kind of weaved into those kind of adventures that I went on when I was younger and I was I've always been very critically aware of things like the illegal wildlife trade never shied away from it I've always tried to educate myself because I'm a firm believer that ignorance is no longer bliss you know if we don't know about these issues if we if we kind of bury our heads in the sand because they're too much for us to handle don't get me wrong sometimes they are too much to handle but but burying our, our heads in the sand, that issue becomes a lot bigger. So when we eventually pull our head out of that sand, then actually we're faced with a much bigger challenge. But actually by tackling it and kind of facing it head on, then we can change the issues that we're so scared of. But unless we face up to it, then, then, then we're in a lot of trouble. So I've always had that mentality. So I've always wanted to face up to it. And, um, you know, I think that the more people stand side by side and the more people that actually try to make a change, then the smaller that problem gets. Um, so yeah, I kind of, I've always confronted myself with some pretty horrible, um, science or, or kind of, um, imagery, I guess, of, of people really struggling and that it, it drives me every single day. I've seen some terrible things. Um, but that's what makes me, you know, want to dedicate my life to trying to stop it, to make the world a little bit of a better place, either, you know, for, for communities and, and, and wildlife, nature as a whole, you know, well, I say that like we're two separate things. We are absolutely the same thing. Um, so, you know, it's it's a work in progress. And, that, you know, I, yeah, it's a, yeah, I don't know. It's it's important that we can all work together on it because I'm only one person. We need a lot of people to, to kind of um, act and roll their sleeves up and get stuck in. But I definitely think that's happening more now. We just need to, we need the people with a bit more influence higher up to, to get on with it. Because I feel like we're trying hard, you know, normal people. <laughs> we're all trying hard. And, um, you know, the, but there's only so much we can do when we're kind of governed by people that don't seem to want to act. And where's the balance for you? I find this really interesting between, I, I often think about purpose and I ask lots of people on this podcast about purpose and whether they're purposeful. It seems to me that you are immensely purposeful. Um, but I think that can be a blessing and a curse. You know, how... It seems, and you can disagree with any of this, but it seems that from an early age you knew what you wanted to do with your life and you were hyper aware of the issues. Where's the balance between this kind of immense, profound, powerful purpose and actually it being all-consuming and, you know, dealing with that at a young age, struggling with it, with your mental health or not? Is that a balance? Is it a dance? Or are you just a positive person? Um, I think I am quite resilient in some senses because you know, I've, I've been exposed to these issues for a long time. And I think because, you know, I've really spoken to the people at the coalface of, of climate change and things like that. I think I've really um, not become immune to it. I think I don't think that's right at all because it's still absolutely petrifying in many ways and, and desperately sad. 
Um, but I do think, you know, I, I've, I've had to build some resilience. So I'm very good at kind of harnessing that eco-anxiety, I suppose you can call it. I'm very good at, you know, recognizing when it's about to hit and when it does hit and just kind of actually flipping it around and using it to my advantage because I think we can manipulate eco-anxiety to some degree. Um, yes, it can be, you know, quite all-consuming when it takes over, but if we use that frustration and that anger and that, I don't know, um, fear in some ways, if we can use it, actually those emotions are very powerful. And if we use them as motivators, then actually we can kind of change that narrative a little bit. And I know that's easier said than done, and it will very much depend on people's um, personal mental health. But I mean, that's what I found. Every time I've found, you know, like a devastating statistic, I remember, you know, for example, March 2018, where Sudan, the last male northern white rhino died, leaving the species functionally extinct and leaving behind only two females. I remember waking up to that news and being utterly crushed because I was like, well, if we can't save rhinos, then what hope is there for anything else? Um, but I just thought, right, okay, this has happened. What can I do for rhinos next? This, we can't let this happen again. Let's learn from our mistakes. Let's pick ourselves up and let's just get on with, with saving the species we've got left. I mean, turns out now we've got northern white uh, rhino embryos frozen initially, hopefully for a surrogacy program, which is some amazing Jurassic Park science going on. Um, so they might be might be pulled back literally from extinction, which would be great. Um, so there is hope to be found. And there is a lot of hope to be found in people. When, you know, I, I get to talk to people every single day. And it's one of the best things that I love about my job is that I get to meet people that know way more about this topic than I do. And I get to pick their brains and understand, you know, more about from their perspective or their niche animal. It might be some, you know, very specific type of I don't know, earthworm, for example. I don't know what it could be. It could be anything. And I get to learn all about it. And that's what I love. Um, but to hear their hope and their optimism and how they're working on things and their breakthroughs, like that's reason to hope. If we're able to save Northern White Rhino, a functionally extinct species, and bring it back through, yes, some, you know, unusual techniques but if we're able to do that then we can turn it around I firmly believe in the solutions I firmly believe in people in the most part um I just think we we've got to keep applying the pressure to make make the change at the top because there are some good people out there wanting to do some good things but I think it's just about being braver and being more confident to use our voice and ask for the change that we want to see well not so much ask for the change anymore, demand the change we want to see because we don't have a lot of time to sort this out, but we do have the solutions and there are people willing to put those solutions in place. So, yeah, I mean, there is a balance between, um, you know, mental health and, and, and exposure to all these things, but if, if we harness it in the right way, it can be a powerful tool. But, I mean, that's easier said than done. Some days are better than others. Some days are pretty miserable, but the majority of the time I, I try to be as optimistic as I can be. Yeah. Oh God, there's a lot to unpack. So as, as you can see, I have no notes. You know, that's part of what I love here is let's just go where we go, where we go. But I think there's a couple of interesting things to talk around about, around ethics. And I suspect that they're, you know, their viewpoints rather than hard rules. But how do you feel about, you know, the science and the tech and conservation and this whole idea of, you know, let's freeze the embryos until we have an answer or let's I mean, you're about to work out very quickly that I'm not particularly techie, but, you know, if we can understand their DNA and, you know, bring them back in 10, 15, 20, 50 years, should we? Where, mm. Where's the ethical debate on that and what do you think? 
Well, there will be be a lot closer than 10, 15 years. So those frozen embryos, I think there's about six or seven of them at the minute, um, are going to be implanted into a southern white rhino female. So essentially it's a surrogacy program. So uh, a southern white will then give birth to a northern white calf and we'll have northern whites running around again. Um, And that will, I mean, they're working on the surrogacy uh, program at the minute, making sure it's as efficient and effective as possible before they kind of implant, you know, a northern white embryo inside. So, yeah, I mean, I think there is a line with the ethics. I've done a lot of research around northern white rhinos. I've actually written a whole chapter about it in my new book, but I won't plug that shamelessly, don't worry. Um, So, um, you know, and I've spoken to the scientists that have done the freezing and and have have the embryos in Italy. I've spoken to the lab and spoken to the rangers in Olpegeta Conservancy where the northern white rhinos live or the the last two females live, uh, Najin and Fatu are their names. Um, And yeah, I mean, it is a desperate situation. And I think um, in this case, actually, it's quite interesting. The ethics aren't being crossed too much. So what they've done is they've taken uh, the eggs from the female. They've taken eggs from uh, female Najin. Uh, Fatu's the mum and is a little bit too old for old for egg collection. Um, and they've combined that with frozen sperm that's been taken from previously deceased males. And then they've created this embryo, um, which is now frozen until they're ready for, for surrogacy. So in terms of genetics, I mean, it's not too far off what we do with IVF and stuff for humans. So in terms of technology, then... Yes, it's a very new tactic and it's a very new thing to bring a species back from being extinct, quite literally. But in terms of the techniques that are being done, they're kind of being adapted for rhinos. We've already used them. Um, But yeah, there is certainly a line, I think, because we have to ask ourselves the question, if we're bringing species back from the brink, where is their habitat? They went extinct for a reason. Is there enough habitat to support them? Yes, we might have destroyed that habitat, so it is totally on our hands, but we can't bring them back if there's nowhere for them to go. So we have to ask ourselves that question. And with northern whites, there is still some habitat in reserves in in, in um, northern Africa. Um, but yeah, we do need to think about that more cohesively. I think you know we can't just be bringing animals back or breeding them in captivity for a reintroduction program if there is nowhere to reintroduce them. What's the point? Um, so we do have to be asking ourselves that kind of critical questions and we do need to be taking a look at the technology as well because there's some really scary stuff coming out um there's some scientists in japan who have been able to create egg and sperm cells using skin and hair samples from people and this essentially means that you could create a baby from a baby create a baby from um someone who's deceased um, it is intended to help people that can't have children themselves, but the ramifications of being able to do this I mean that you could basically create a baby from any DNA sample, regardless of who or what it is. I mean, you could have Elvis's babies running around again, you know, if we had his, well, I'm sure there is his DNA somewhere. Um, so, you know, it, that, that for me is quite scary, especially because the scientist himself said this ability literally gives us the chance to mass produce humans in test tubes. And that is absolutely frightening. Um, Conservationists are kind of raising an eyebrow because that is a technique that certainly could be used to bring species back from the brink. And if there was sufficient habitat and resources for them, you know, if we've wiped them out and that's our fault and they've gone before their time, perhaps it is our duty to put them back, but not if we're not ready in terms of their habitat and resource requirements. So it's a bit of an interesting debate going on at the minute as to whether that's ethical. I'd argue 
that the chance of mass producing humans is is way too scary for me. I mean, we were, there's already quite a lot of us and we're already over consuming a lot. The idea of having a lot more is a little bit frightening. Um, so yeah, I mean, that wouldn't be a technique that I'd probably go down. I think my, the alarm bells in my head are ringing <laughs> quite high with that. Um, but yeah, we do need to ask ourselves some critical questions when it comes to kind of this literal Jurassic Park type science and, and whether it's worth it. And ultimately, should we just look at sad situations where, you know, our actions have caused extinction and just say, okay, I hold my hands up. We've really messed up here. Like seriously, like we've done a lot of damage. Um, let's learn from it and not make the same mistakes again. Let's turn it around. But we are very much a re reactive and not a proactive species. And that's part of the problem that we have is that we like to hold our hands up and go, oh, we shouldn't have done that when things have already gone disastrously wrong. But we're not very good at thinking like, oh, this could go disastrously wrong. Let's just not do it in the first place. We don't do that. We have to wait till things are bad enough already happened to be like, oops. But um, if we could just see things happening and act now, that would be that would be best. But changing human mentality is one of the hardest things to do. Totally. Yeah, and there are a few amazing books about that. One I reference all the time called The Good Ancestor that talks about, you know, long-term thinking and looking at ourselves as good ancestors. And I think that's potentially part of the problem is we say, oh, well, we've got the technology to just bring stuff back now, so we don't need to worry about species loss, right, because we'll just fix it later. Um, but, I mean, that's a whole different conversation and debate, and I'm fascinated by the ethics probably because, you know, I don't move in the world that you do, and it's so big and so complex. I just wonder, you know, who's making these decisions and who's governing it in terms of what we do bring back, what we don't bring back, where the ethics and tech and all of this stuff meet? Where the money is. That's the key thing is, you know, you get, for example, some major companies. Recently, there was a major company. I, can't, I genuinely can't remember what they're, what they're called. I probably blocked it out of my mind as quickly as I possibly could. Um, but there was a major company that gave a donation to a lab to bring back the dodo. And they're working on it. I mean, that's just, for me, like, yes, humans caused that extinction, but, I, like, a dodo, how does that fit into kind of modern ecology? If we put a dodo back, would that displace other species? Would it be even be able to survive? Would we have the right habitat for it? Like, sometimes we've just got to live and learn, and rather than spending millions of pounds bringing back a long-extinct bird, perhaps we could spend millions of pounds making sure the ones that we have don't go extinct. You know, so yeah, it is. Um, it's a weird world, and I think a lot of kind of companies. I think this company doesn't even have anything to do with biology, but they're thinking it's a flashy project and something that will bring them a lot of press. So, you know, put millions of pounds towards, well, probably billions of pounds towards bringing back the dodo, which is nuts. Seems very bizarre to me, but you know, we live in a very bizarre world. Yeah, I don't want to come across as too naive or silly or sci-fi, but where do you draw the line? Because then suddenly somebody's saying, hey, look, we've got some T-Rex DNA in a lab in secret somewhere. Shall we just get those as well? Because they're cool, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I really wouldn't. Um, I mean, they've already got a, a mammoth embryo frozen, you know. I mean, just in case we need a, a mammoth wandering around at any point, we've got, a, got an embryo ready to go. I mean, what, what, like, it's so weird. I just don't understand that mentality of, like, we're obsessed with life on other planets and we're obsessed with things that have kind of gone extinct that appeared in the Ice Age movies. Like, we're so obsessed with, like, what we don't have that we kind of forget what we have got. 
And that's what's really sad because if you can't go outside and step on your doorstep and appreciate, you know, the birds in your garden, um, you know, the, the beavers, the eagles that we have here in the UK, all of these amazing species that we've got, if we can't appreciate those and we've got no right to appreciate, you know, w- what's come before in a way. You know, we can, we can appreciate it and admire it, but the idea of wanting it to be like roaming around again, when we can't appreciate what's on our doorstep, it just doesn't, doesn't correlate. We're always dreaming of more and not actually enjoying what we've got. Yeah, and isn't that the, again, you might disagree, but it's the whole, the fun idea. You know, I think if you were to do a poll and say, should we bring mammoths back from extinction? And let's say a British poll, lots of people, most people would vote, yeah, that sounds amazing, let's do it. But if you said, should we reintroduce wolves and lynx to Scotland? I think the vast majority would say no, because they can see the direct impact that's going to have on the landscape as they perceive it. Mm. Um, It's, again, it's the hypothetical versus the reality. And I don't know if you want to get into all of that, whether it's viewpoints or whether it's what's actually happening, but we did have those creatures up there. Yeah, they have every right to be here as much as everything else. But at the end of the day, you know, we're still arguing like beavers have just been wrecking well you know a little while ago now have been recognized as a native species and yet when we're releasing them we're still releasing them into pens they're still essentially captive i mean they're fending for themselves in terms of foraging and, and building their dams and things however we're not allowing them to roam some populations are but you know reintroductions they're they're in like an enclosure and we like if we're still you know bickering about beavers when Actually, all the science has said so far how beneficial they are for the landscape, how great they are at reducing flood risk, um, how, you know, that they are native, they belong here. Like, I, I, and we're still doing that. I mean, we're so slow to build our confidence. And yet, you know, we're at the same time releasing millions of non-native birds without second thought. But I won't get into that. Um, because that's another kettle of fish so you know there's one rule for one thing and other rules for everything else so yeah it is it is quite frustrating and especially when you talk about the kind of the lynx and wolf debate I mean there are there are fragments of habitat that could be suitable perhaps mainly probably in in, in Scotland and the Cairngorms in particular um but it's just a fear of the unknown I think that's it and there's something called shifting baseline syndrome which is a fascinating topic, I think. And it's all about how generations become normalised or, or just accept the current environmental standards. So, for example, um, I can go and talk to my nan and granddad and they'll tell me about nightingales in Southampton and red squirrels in Norfolk. But I can't remember that because that's not my reality. That's not my experience in my generation. So I'm used to this countryside, which is stripped of trees, which sometimes can be green, but it's actually more of a monoculture of green. And I look at that and think, oh, well, this is the way our landscape should be. But actually, no, if you go back into my parents or my grandparents' generation or even further back, the landscape was incredibly different. And I'm very lucky that I spend a lot of my time in Scotland. Um, I really love the Cairngorms and, and, and it's a really beautiful place. It's very, very special to me. Um, and it's probably the wildest place that we've got in the UK. Um, but I can go into the Cairn, like Cairngorms Connect area and I think, yeah, this is like what I'd imagine it should be like. But then I go a few miles in the other direction and they're just bare mountains you know there's no tree life there there's hardly any biodiversity and I'm like this is what we've done and that's the majority of the UK and we've got to remember that green isn't necessarily always good um when we're looking at landscapes just because something's green doesn't mean it's actually any biodiversity lives there um 
And we've got to think about replacing the species that we're missing because we're doing something seriously wrong and we're missing a trick. Essentially, by, by culling all these deer that we've got, way too many deer, we're having to fulfil the role of, of bear, um, well, bears, yes, but also kind of wolves and things as well. So we're having to kind of do an apex predator's job, but really we should be thinking, hang on a minute, we're missing a massive link in this chain. We need these apex predators, but we can also manage ourselves, manage our livestock in a way that is, you know, as, as safe as possible with these other animals around. There is ways of doing that. I mean, you look all across Europe, you look across Africa, people that are living next to lion prides and wild dogs and everything else, leopards. Um, like, there are ways of managing it. And are there going to be some casualties? Sadly, potentially. But we need to work it out um, because this is the health of our environment we're talking about. We need apex predators. We know how important they are in the ocean and terrestrially. We need them. They manage the landscape. And we don't do a very good job of managing the landscape. We think we do, but we overmanage it. Um, and then we are left with this bleach desert, essentially. Yeah, and I um, I tend not to get my opinions out too much here because I'm supposed to just be a steering wheel. But I think I feel so strongly about this stuff. And it's because... You know, I moved to the lakes at 16. I fell in love with the Lake District. I thought it was the most beautiful place in the world, particularly, you know, I'm from the East Coast where there's nothing. Um, but then a friend, Emma, who's one of my best friends, she explained what the lakes really is. And, you know, the Monbio angle, it's a Beatrix Potter themed sheet museum. And I still see beauty in it, but it's not, it's not really wild in any way, shape or form. And I think just it's the arrogance of humankind where, we just think, well, it's our landscape. You know, we should either grow food there or go and play there or grow wood there, whatever we want to do. But actually, what room are we giving, you know, biodiversity, nature, natural world? And, and what can that do for us as people? Um, you know, we have a responsibility to be stewards and custodians and guardians of the landscape, which in Britain particularly, it means restoring it. But actually then enjoying it for what it is and feeling more of a connection to nature but I think it's public perception and how the hell do we get that back? Because that shifting baseline syndrome you talk about is so much of it. You know, Britain's green and pleasant land. Um, I don't know what the answer is outside of, because I find it really difficult. And I'm really conscious of not overwhelming people by saying, you know, all those places you love, well, actually they're completely broken. You know, yeah. invent a new classification of national park because ours didn't meet the criteria. Mm. Yeah. It's hard. It, that, it, that's a really hard one because people, um, you know, go to our national parks and, and don't get me wrong, they can be incredibly beautiful. And they are like the topography is amazing. Like it's impressive when you kind of going through a valley and you like mountains and stuff like it is stunning. Of course it is. But when you know what's missing, it becomes very different. It almost becomes an almost sad place to be because you see the potential in what was um, you know, in, in our national park. And don't get me wrong, there are some amazing people working in the national parks. I absolutely admire every single one of you that does it, uh, whether you volunteer in the national parks or, or, or work there full time. There's amazing hard work people going on, uh, amazing hard work going on from lots of different people to restore it. Um, you know, but it's just, you know, in terms of its history, there's been so much destruction and, and kind of deforestation going on there um, that it is definitely a scarred landscape. Um but I think it's showing people the alternative. You know, Wild Isles is the, the new kind of UK David Attenborough series that I'm hoping loads of people have watched 
obviously incredibly beautiful and it is one thing seeing it on a screen and it's a one thing seeing it in real life um so getting people to kind of go and see the potential i mean going up to kengorms connect if you can i love that project i love the people and they really are have got they've got this long-term strategy project the only kind of uh, uk strategy that i'm aware of that are looking into like the next hundreds of years for their for their conservation it's not just the next five years um and you can tell the difference when you're kind of in that landscape. So, yeah, I mean, it is um, seeing it for yourself. I mean, my, my little brother, he is, uh, he's 14 years old, which is terrifying to say. I had to think of it then because I was about to say he's nine years old. He's not. He's 14 years old. Um, and he recently came up to visit me in Scotland. And I was on the phone to my mum as they were driving up and they got to the lakes. And he said, I didn't know we even had these kind of hills in the UK. And I'm like, how? I don't know how I've not taught him that. <laughs> um, so maybe I failed as a sister. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I got I got to get him up into the Highlands in Scotland and, and show him what a wild place could look like, or as close to wild as we have here. It's not 100. percent Don't get me wrong. Still a lot of work to do, but it's better than a lot of other places. So it was great to see like him kind of light up and enjoy that environment and realize wow like this is great we've got family in Canada and he's like god this looks like Canada and I'm like oh yeah it kind of kind of is a little bit it's as close as we get um so it's really kind of I think bringing communities into wild spaces and it doesn't have to be all the way up in northern Scotland you know it, into the closest wild place that we have wherever that's local to you and it's about accessibility like bringing people from the cities into it you know, going in and, and reaching communities that actually don't often get the chance to go out, um, whether that is, you know, a financial reason, a time reason, uh, whatever it may be. Um, but, like, we, we need to work together on kind of reaching those communities and saying, hey, like, this is here. Can we take you out to it and show you what it could be like? Um, and it's amazing. Once you see someone kind of connect with, I don't know, a blackbird singing or they see... I don't know, a J for the first time. And then it's a, actually like a light bulb moment. It's a really beautiful thing when you've kind of got someone hooked on it. And, it, and you don't have to be able to go out into nature and identify everything. I think that's a common misconception is that you've got to go out there and you've got to be like, this is this bird, this is that insect, that's that butterfly. And you don't have to know a whole lot about it. It doesn't matter. Personally, I don't, I don't really care if you can identify anything or not. I don't like, that doesn't matter to me. But if you're going out there and going, oh, look at that bird. It's got beautiful colors. It sounds amazing. And you're getting, you know, a mental health boost from it. You're kind of experiencing nature. Then that's the important thing. It's building that connection. And it's not alienating people from this conversation because they don't know as much about it. And I think as an industry, we're probably at fault in that sense because we, you know, we're like, oh, well, do you know what this bird is? That doesn't matter. You don't have to know. Don't worry about it. Just go and enjoy it. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to know what everything is to be able to appreciate it. And I think, you know, that's a, a key message as well. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com 
slash host. Yeah. And it's also, I think, just based on my own experience of, you know, thinking everything was wild and beautiful until I was like in my mid twenties, probably. And then becoming a bit obsessed with, well, where are the, you know, where I live in Suffolk is it's heavy agriculture, but there are a few pockets of really amazing old growth forest and they're all privately owned and there are no footpaths through them. And I may or may not regularly visit them. Um, and that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I've had Nick Hayes on the podcast and talked about the right to roam and trespass and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's a different conversation for a different day, but we're just excluded from so much of what is really wild. Um, but also that doesn't mean we can't enjoy the places that aren't perfect. And mm-hmm. you know, when I take my two-year-old out to a plantation wood where there's a car park and we're allowed to go there, I struggle to see any much beauty in that environment but what she knows is it's a forest and we can go there and we're not in the town and we're not in the house and we're playing in the woods and there's nothing wrong with that Mm. I think it's just I don't know what's my point like for those who want to educate themselves and learn more about it and I'm like a tiny way down this massive long road looking at a place and saying what was this like a thousand years ago what could this be again does it need to change there's beauty in that as well as despair and hopelessness yeah absolutely I mean I think and I think that's the beautiful thing about I mean I don't I don't have children but you know when I ever go out with young children you know exploring nature you get like that and it's and it's very it's not childish it's like childlike enthusiasm for stuff and you see the world through their eyes and like you look at things like you haven't looked at them in a long time and and it's that simplistic joy of just being outside it doesn't matter where you are you could be in an ancient woodland or a plantation woodland but you looking at it again through a child's eyes actually kind of helps reignite that passion I think sometimes and it doesn't matter you know necessarily the health of that ecosystem at that point in time but if you're able to enjoy it and connect with it, then you're harnessing that relationship. Like, you, you know, your daughter, for example, is harnessing that relationship now so that perhaps when she's in her mid-20s, she'll have that same realisation that you had and think, wait a minute, I love this. I've got this relationship with it. And now I'm empowered to try and protect it and change it because I know, know more about it. And it's like what I mentioned earlier is initially I wanted to learn about how it's moving, what colour is it? And then I kind of asked slightly more mature questions like not really you know I wouldn't call them mature questions but like slightly more complicated questions about like okay what can be done to protect it how do we conserve this um so it's an evolution of that kind of that kind of questioning isn't it and initially it's that simple joy we're all in this because we had that simple joy when we were younger and that like infectious enthusiasm of like oh my god look at all this like life around me and then you ask harder questions as you kind of get older and learn more about it I think that's a very natural process but as long as we're harnessing that relationship and that connection, then we are, you know, we're on our way, aren't we? Yeah. And I think this is a very Britain-focused conversation at the moment, and you have lots of views on, you know, lots of different places. But <laughs> do you think, or how do you react when you're travelling through British, and you know, inverted commas, wild spaces? And, you know, we're one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world in terms of biodiversity. I think we're 189th ranked globally. Mm. Um, do you think I don't want to say we're winning that fight because we're not but is the graph starting to curve upwards or is it continuing to spiral downwards um 
I think there's two different answers to that. I think on an individual level, I think people have never been more aware or more empowered to use their voice and try to make a change. So I think we're kind of at this, we're coming to a crossroads very quickly. I think we are, well, to be honest, kind of at the crossroads in many senses, but I think it's coming soon in terms of the the response of the crossroads. We're kind of at the crossroads making a decision, but we'll we'll have to choose our way pretty soon. Um, So yeah, I think... I think in terms of people, yes, I think the curve is definitely looking upwards. We've got people more aware, more educated than ever, um, you know, looking at like the Fridays for Future movement, um, looking at the big one that happened in London. Like we've got more people engaged and trying to make ethical decisions, whether that's in their shopping trolleys, whether that's the clothes they buy, whether that's, you know, how and where they go on holiday. Um, from an individual perspective, yeah, absolutely. I think the curve is, is absolutely turning up. There is that drive and will to make the world a better place, to be more ethical. Um, but then on the other hand, you've got a government which has just licensed a new coal mine. So on that perspective, no, I do think we're going down still. Um, so, you know, they were just talking about bringing animal testing back. Luckily that got scrapped and they won't be bringing animal testing back. Uh, that would make me very, very upset. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're still having these conversations. Like when you're talking about bringing animal testing back and you're talking about new coal mines and we know we need to move away from fossil fuels and fossil fuel infrastructure, as stated by the latest IPCC report, and we've known that also even before the latest report, um, that is definitely something that's concerning. So we've almost got these kind of two contrasts of like people at the top being like, well, we make lots of money off of coal mines and it lines our pockets well and we can use it to build more swimming pools and heat them. And, you know, we can have, um, you know, exotic foods flown around the world and, you know, we can afford to have five homes and all this kind of stuff. You've got that kind of group of people at the top thinking like, no, we're profiting too much off of coal mines. We're going to keep doing it. But then we've got the everyday people um, like myself, like you, like everyone, you know, the majority of people who are like, no, we don't want this anymore. So we're coming to a point where we're about to kind of, I don't want to say butt heads, but we are butting heads already, but we're, we're about to have to like, as individuals, as the majority rise up and make our voice peacefully democratically even more heard you know and we do have to do that you know non-violent and peacefully of course we do but I think we're at a point where we're going to have to start you know we're already talking about it we're gonna have to start really shouting about it because I don't want that coal mine to open up like I really don't um and there's so much you know environmental destruction still happening um So, yeah, we've kind of got these two contrasted populations. We've got the majority wanting to be good and the minority who are making so much profit off of destroying the planet that they are kind of got their, they've still got their, um, the blindfolds on and they don't, they're not willing to listen or act accordingly. So I think there's two, there's two answers to that. In some ways, yes. And in some ways, no, but the people with the no are the people with the power, but we've got to take that power and flip it around somehow in a peaceful, nonviolent way. Just saying that again. Yeah. And I, I say this with zero, zero judgment, but I think it's also about being realistic given that people have needs and that people's lives are hard. I think, yeah. you know, and I, I'm not suggesting you should or shouldn't have strong views on this um, publicly, but, you know, I look at the Just Stop Oil protests all the time and I read the comments all mm-hmm. the time. And I think it's really, really difficult because, you know, Gary Lineker has just come out and said, it's disruptive protest. It's historically the only thing that works. Which is true. Which is true. But you've got lots of people saying, I need to get to work and I need to get my mum to a hospital appointment and ambulances can't get through. And 
I, how do I phrase this? I get why they think that and I get why they're grumpy. And I just think we need to work towards a solution that benefits our society as well as nature. Otherwise, it will not happen. And I mean, that's, a, that's an argument Monbiot makes all uh, really well. Yeah. It's and the, I, I do agree. Just we, we've tried every other way. This is the thing is we have tried petitions. We have tried emailing our MPs. We have tried using social media. We have tried every single method that we possibly can. Right. So this is this is where the problem lies, is that every attempt to change an act has been done and has failed. Like, that, you know, that's that's the crux of it. And I think, you know, the media has a lot to answer for when it comes to how it represents organisations like Just Up Oil, Extinction Rebellion, uh, Animal Rising and the rest of it, because the language used is incredibly negative. However, um, I've gone to many an XR protest, especially kind of before lockdown. I, I was at the big one recently in London. Um, they are not what they are reported to be like. They're not. So the founders of Extinction Rebellion, you know, I, I've been lucky to film with and, and kind of get to know a couple of them. Um, these people are like professors. These are scientists. These are doctors. These are highly intelligent people, often much more intelligent than I am. And they know a lot more about climate change than probably the rest of the UK combined because they are literally the professors of it. They are the people who have written the science on it. Um, and they have tried. They've tried to, pr to produce science to lead government. Government doesn't listen. They have tried petitions. They've tried every single way. So Extinction Rebellion is something that's been born from people who are frustrated and angry and not being listened to because they don't know what else to do. Like, nobody wants to spend their days out on the streets talking about something that we've been talking about for the last 50 years. They don't want... Everyone's got better things to do. Like, we all do. But every other method has failed. What, uh, what have we got left to do other than to shout about it? Um, and every protest that I have been to has actually been the most beautiful space. It's a very encouraging, positive space. People are, you know, making the most amazing food. There's a lot of art. There's dancing. Like, I keep calling it a festival with purpose because it genuinely has that kind of festival feel to it. Like, everyone's come together and is supportive of one another. There are spaces to talk about eco-anxiety, if that's something that you feel. There is space to talk about positivity. There's space to just be with like-minded people that are, have the same fears that you do and the same concerns and to talk about it and to and to feel listened to and to ask for change outside parliament or wherever it may be that you're protesting. Um, and I, I've, I've come away feeling quite emotional generally from every single protest that I've been to that they've put on because I think, thank God, like thank God somebody is doing something about this. Thank God people are standing up because it was a sigh of relief when it all started happening because, you know, thank God we're starting to act because you know, nothing else has worked. Let's see if this works. And I've never had more conversations about climate change and about biodiversity loss than I have when there's an Extinction Rebellion protest going on in London. There has never been more talk about it than there is. They have, you know, I'm not saying I agree with all of their methods. There's some actions that I don't agree with, and I'm happy to say that. And that's because the, the problem with, you know, these organisations is that they are decentralised. And you know what? On the outside of it, that seems like a really great method and a really great strategy to have, you know, no hierarchical system within it. 
but it does mean that anyone can do an action using its name. So there are some actions that I think shouldn't have happened and have probably been counterintuitive and not got people on side. Um, but there are also a lot of actions that I think were really brilliant. And you don't have to agree with all of it. You don't have to agree with everything that they do, but you have to agree with the message. And at the end of the day, they're the ones getting the message out there, regardless of whether you like the method or not. Um, you know, they do, I have seen it where I've been on the ground where an ambulance has come and they quickly, how quickly they move is impressive. Like they have practiced this and I've been to their practicing demos and, you know, I, I've done the lesson on how to be arrested. I haven't been arrested yet, um, but I've done, I've done, I know what to do if it ever happens. Um, you know, and I've seen how quickly they move out of the way when an ambulance comes, but the way it's reported you know, if there's ever an ambulance waiting for more than two seconds and it's reported that they're, they're blocking ambulances, that's not my experience of it. I'm sure accidents have happened where they haven't been able to move as quickly as they would have liked to, but they definitely make that a priority. Um, and they they don't they don't want to make people late for work. That's not their intention. They don't want to piss people off. God, who wants to do that? No one wants to do that. But they are trying to make the world a better place because there's going to be no getting to work in 20 years time when the world is too hot there's no food going on everything's underwater anyway um, and, and we're all in a lot of trouble so again it's about that long-term thinking and not short-term thinking um and ultimately you know there are routes around it you don't have to go through like a lot of them happen in central london there are routes around it which might take you five minutes more but you know it's five minutes at the end of the day for the for the future of the planet um, but as long as we're doing this peacefully and um, in a non-violent way, I, d I don't know what else we can do, especially because even our, our right to protest is being taken away from us. Like when it's illegal to take to the streets to talk about things, and that's environmental movement, that's everything else as well. That We're talking about you know, racism marches, we're talking about war marches, well, hopefully anti-war marches, we're talking about abortion marches and environmental marches. You know, when we're talking about all of that and we're not allowed to use our voice to campaign for the, the things we love, then that's going to be a real big problem. And I think that that's a huge mistake on the government. I think it's, um, you know, taking away free speech. I think it's taking away our democracy. And if anything, that's going to anger so many more people that they're going to have, you know, I saw an article recently that the, the jails are already full. Um, well, they're going to have a lot more people to put inside because I think a lot of people are just going to protest for the sake of protesting because it's illegal you take away our rights to do that, a lot more people will come to the streets because they're going to be so angry. Um, so I think that's not going to go in their favour in the long run. Um, and I certainly will take to the streets to protest my right to protest. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you're right about that. I think, you know, I talk to a lot of friends about this kind of impending Orwellian future where we remove the word riot from the dictionary so that people don't know what it means. And it's just not going to happen. I don't, I, I can't see it because I think, particularly people like us, like I hope, you know, the listeners to this podcast, I think I'm much more likely to get on a train to London to come and protest for my rights to protest, if that makes sense. Mm. I think, you know, that's, it, it's just, you take that away, it's just undemocratic, which is un-British if you want to use that kind of, you know, I think people don't want to have that stripped away. Um, and they won't be able to arrest 5,000 people at once. No, I mean, they'll try. What they'll do is they'll move you on and then actually, like, you know, pretend to. And well, not pretend to. They'll go, they'll, they'll, they'll try and, you know, say that say that you will, but then you'll be released in five minutes. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Happened a number of times. I mean, I, you know, I've not been in a position to get arrested yet. Um, 
but I just I, and I say yet because I just I don't know what the future is going to hold I, I don't want to cause trouble I don't want to go down that route like I just but I just I'm quite fearful of the fact of like I don't know how bad the situation is going to get yeah so, you know I think we're kind of fighting amongst ourselves at the minute again the people that want to make the ethical change and the people that are profiting from the destruction of the planet this is again coming to a head this is where it meets in the middle um so you know we've got to stand up and be counted because the more of us that show up there to say no we should be able to protest and you know we're also just here because we're trying to make the world a better place we don't want to cause trouble the better really and i and i stand up for the people that you know that call themselves activists because you know the word activist has almost been like slandered in so many ways you know it's really seen as a negative word to be an activist and i think that's been a very clever political move for quite a long time um but actually i mean activism can mean whatever you want it to mean to you i'd argue as living beings we're all active within our you know role in our in our own spaces and our own landscape and therefore and to some degree we're all activists if you feed the birds you're an activist if you you know go glue yourself to a pavement in london uh, most people would agree you're an activist but regardless of what activism means to you you can you're it let's reclaim that word and, and bring power back to it because do we want to do you want to be labeled as an inactivist i'd rather be you know i don't want to be an inactivist um you know so we've got to reclaim that word and bring power back to it because it's a real shame that it has so many negative connotations to it when actually it's a really beautiful thing and and you don't have to be a key member of Extinction Rebellion or Just Up Oil to do it. You don't have to be, you know, going with Animal Rising to to sit in a farm and protest in a farm to do it. You don't have to. You can do what it means to you to, to use your voice. Yeah. Um, that's all we need at the minute. I think, you know, I've said a hundred times and I'll probably say it a hundred times again that, you know, to make the world a better place, we can make wildlife-friendly gardens, we can put in hedgehog highways, make, um, you know, little patches with wildflower seeds. It doesn't have to be a meadow, it could be a little flower pot. Um, you know, feed the birds, or put in a little wildlife pond. I say all these things all the time, and I will, and I love them, and I think it's really important that we all do this, obviously. But I'm getting to the point now where I think the most important thing we all have to do, and we're getting to the point where it is a have and a must do, um, is, is to stand up and be counted, because unless we protest this coal mine, unless we, you know, ask for the, the um, well, the rainforest to stop being cut down, unless we ask for rewilding and restoration and we ask for positive change, we're not going to get it. Um, so we really do at this point in time, I think, have to stand up and be counted. And, you know, I've started saying in the last month or so that that actually is the most important thing we can all do as individuals is, okay, turn up. And, and if you don't, if you're unsure about a protest, just go to one, try it out, see what you think of that environment, see what you think of the atmosphere. If it's not for you, totally fine, go home. But just don't listen to what is often portrayed in the media. Go and experience it for yourself, because I actually promise you'll, it'll probably sort your eco-anxiety right out, because there is not a more positive space if you're concerned about the environment. Yeah, and I think that's a really, really interesting point. And I think you know, we get quite a lot of emails into the podcast about eco-anxiety, although not always phrased like that, but that's what it is. Mm. And I think we all have different tolerances for what we can and can't do. Yeah. And, that, you know, I'm interested to ask you, but I'll throw a few in first. And this really harks back to a conversation that I had on the podcast with Nick Hayes, which if people haven't listened to that and you're interested in what we're talking about, I'd really recommend. Because the right to roam is a totally 
different but relevant and you know Venn diagram conversation and and the the right to roam protests i mean it's basically a load of like-minded people sat in a field singing songs and having picnics you know yeah right i mean but somebody said to me a while ago a lady called sophie darlington um wildlife camera woman who is sensational in Mm. every way um she said the most environmentally friendly thing you can do the easiest win is change banks and i was like that's an interesting one so googled that and then realized how important it is not to save our money spend our money with banks that invest in fossil fuels mm-hmm. that's an easy win and then vote is another one you know how you vote actually yeah. show up and vote um but my question i guess is for those people who are sat at home thinking oh god it's all broken oh god it's all ruined and don't feel part of a community who are solving and fixing anything or feel like it's all hopeless outside of showing up to a protest which i would say is a really good thing to do even if you just stand on the sidelines and don't engage and maybe don't even be part of the protest mm-hmm. what can people do to feel like they're part of something which i think is so critical um i would say i mean obviously changing your bank is always a really good thing um as well as voting i mean those are two very big ones um i would say First of all, to combat eco-anxiety, go back and reconnect with what you love. Go and sit in your garden and listen to a blackbird singing for five minutes. Close your eyes, sit down. Don't focus on anything else, just listen to a bird sing. And actually, you'll find how much that grounds you. I mean, it does for me. Whenever I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed by things, I just go and sit outside and focus in on one bird in particular, and I just listen. And I was I was actually late for for a job the other day because there was a blackbird singing in the middle of town and I was like it was so close and I was so captivated by it that I was almost like paralyzed I was like I can't actually move I need to like stop and listen to this um so I was a couple minutes late because I was listening to a blackbird singing um but I think sometimes that puts everything back into perspective and it, that can boost your mental health significantly it can make you feel connected again to, to nature which is what we're all fighting for we don't want to fight but sometimes you know when we have to we need to remind ourselves of what we're fighting for. And that's sometimes the best way I find anyway, is to go and listen, engage a different sense, going to close your eyes, which is our, our main way of observing the world and just listen. And I find that for me, it's quite calming. So the first thing I'd say is go and do that. Um, and the second thing I would just say, reach out to a local group. There are so many like-minded people that probably live next door to you and if you haven't spoken about it then you know you probably will never know that they're feeling exactly the same way and there are so many local groups it could be um you know a volunteer group that you could be going out and making a difference in your local community it could be um you know it, you know it could be a, an extinction rebellion local group it could be whatever you want it to be and um, just Go and have a conversation with people. Talk to people um, about it. They might be your neighbours. They might be, you know, living across the field from you. They might be living across the town, wherever it may be. But just do a bit of research and find a local group. Find like-minded people to talk to um, because that will really help lift the weight off your shoulders. So from an eco-anxiety perspective, talk about it. You know, don't be afraid to communicate. That's the most important thing. Listen to the birds and talk to each other. Nice. I agree. (laughs) Um, So my last question, I'm very conscious of time before I do my classic final two, which I always do, is 
and I asked this in a different way towards the start, but by and large, do you feel positive about the things that you're doing, the state of the world? Maybe not positive, optimistic. Do you feel purposeful? And how do you get out of bed every morning and crack on knowing the things that you know? Um, yeah, I, I think it's that sense of duty and injustice that gets me out of bed in the morning. I feel like I, I've got a real strong sense of injustice. Like when anything's not fair or, or, or not quite right, I feel that very personally and very hard. Um, so that is a, is, is quite a motivator for me when I feel like something's not right. Um, so that's probably what gets me up and out of bed in the morning. But yeah, I mean, I find hope, as I said before, in the people doing amazing things. And I also find hope in the fact that we still have so much beautiful biodiversity left around us. You know, whether it's that blackbird singing, whether it's a beaver, regardless of whether it's being released into an enclosure or, or it's a more wild one, um, whether it's an eagle that you see flying over, you know, perhaps depending on where you are, or a pigeon. I don't mind what it is. Um, but whilst there are still, you know, these amazing species that kind of fly, slither, crawl, squeak, chirp, whatever it may be, whilst there are still these animals left on the planet, there's a still a hell of a lot worth fighting for. So for me, that's kind of the hope and the motivation is that, you know, I can, I can hear the birds at the minute from the window and, I, you know, I'm, I'm obviously focused on you, but in my other ear, I'm like, oh, that's nice. Um, so whilst those birds are still singing, then I, I think that's motivation enough for me and I have to stay hopeful. I have to stay hopeful for them. Because ultimately, if we're going down, we've got to go down fighting. But I don't think we're going to go down. I think we'll go down a little bit more. But I think we can pull it pull it around. Because once we've, like I said, we're quite reactive. And once we realise, well, you know, once the big guns at the top realise how far we've gone, um, and once it once the kind of the grips of climate change touch them, then I think we, we will turn it around. But, you know, I, I just hope, for the sake of those birds singing out there, that it's sooner rather than later. But I'm hopeful. I have to stay hopeful. It's, you know, you have to be positive. Nice. So I always ask the same two questions at the end of every podcast. Okay. Um, the first is what scares you? Ooh. Um, that's a big one. <laughs> what scares me? Um, yeah, tricky. Lots of things in many senses. Um, I think probably the biggest one is our ability to ignore our, you know, humans are very good at being quite ignorant. Will, will, willful ignorance scares me because we know we're doing it. And I mean, I'm guilty of it as well. I hold my hands up. I'm not perfect. And I'm not, you know, I've spoken a lot of things on this podcast, but I mean, I'm very much not perfect. I'm still learning. and I'm still, you know, finding things out all the time and um, and and trying to change it and myself as much as talking about other things so you know I know I talk to a lot of people about what they can do I'm still learning about what to do myself and I think that's really important um so I have to call myself up you know when I when I'm feel like I'm being willfully ignorant or and I try and talk about you know ignorance is no longer blessed and all that kind of stuff but yeah that scares me the fact that we know what we're doing and that's still not enough yet but when that wake up come wake up call comes, I, I hope it'll be enough. So yeah, willful ignorance scares me. And what brings you hope? 
Hmm. I think I've kind of already answered this, haven't I? I mean, it's it's it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's the, uh, the people doing doing some amazing work already, um, and the species that we're lucky enough to share our planet with. Because I mean, isn't it cool that we can kind of step outside and you know, depending on where we live, we, we're always going to see some sort of wild life. You know, wild is where you look for it. You can find wild everywhere, whether in the heart of the city or in the countryside. Um, so if you go and search for it and stop and enjoy it, then, you know, it's those moments that kind of keep me hopeful and keep me going. Amazing. I really, really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Not at all. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to theadventurepodcast.co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.